to this episode of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WBEW, LP Brattleboro 107.7, your community radio station. I'm your host, Olga Peters, and we are talking today with regular contributor Emily Kornheiser, who is a representative for Brattleboro. And we are talking about, how should we phrase this, Emily, the legislative session that kind of hasn't ended but sort of will recess and then start again that's i've been actually trying to figure out how to put that into say like a tweet or a facebook post and i have not gotten anywhere so i will leave it to you um (laughs) yes the session was supposed to end in may it's going we're hypothetically pausing um at the end of the day today and then we're going to come back in september or august that also seems to be unclear so yes um our but we are gonna there's some wrapping up that's happening right now okay now uh, before we talk about the legislative session and what's wrapping up right now i I, i'm a little curious because you said coming back in either um august or september you know we have a primary and campaigning and re-elections or elections for the first time coming up yeah how is that all going to fit? I mean, because there's a a, a, a tradition mm. in the Vermont State House that you're not supposed to be campaigning while you're serving the people in the legislature. Like, mm-hmm. the time isn't supposed to overlap, but it's going to. There's no... So there is that tradition, unfortunately, or whatever. Fortu- I don't know if it's unfortunate <laughs> or not. I had to haven't had time to actually particularly form an opinion about this, but um, that's been really fading the last few years. So even when we were still in the building, which was February? Um, that lifetime before COVID. So even when we were still in the building, which was before town meeting week, because when we came back after town meeting week, that's when that was the last week before we left. So Um, early March, February, there were a number of announcements about LG and governor races that were already sort of kicked off. So, and then at town meeting, traditionally people tend to announce whether or not they're running again or they collect signatures. So there's some sort of campaign energy already happening um, at the end of a biennium. And I was sort of, as this was, is my first biennium, I was warned about how things sort of get more politicized as we go on. Um, but it is, it's getting more and more heightened. Um, I think particularly in the Senate, because we have the Senate pro tem running for Lieutenant Governor and another Senator running for Lieutenant Governor, things are um, quite Popcorn dynamic. Worthy? What? Popcorn worthy? Popcorn worthy, yes. Um, and so, in some ways that helps things move along and in some ways um, that you know doesn't always support great decision making. In the house, um, most, there are very few house members who have primaries. Um, and so it's the general election that house members who have tough races are most concerned about. There's a few cases of primaries. But generally, as we've talked about many, many, many months ago, when I was first elected, people tend to not um, primary sitting legislators. 
um, a trend that we also know is changing nationally if we look at what just happened in the New York primaries. Mm -hmm. So, or Kentucky. That, I guess that wasn't the sitting legislator. Um, so, but it does, it changes things. And I think for folks who have a race, it's really, really complicated. And as we get closer and closer to the general election, um, it's gonna be even more complicated. Mm -hmm. um, because conversations that, you know, might have faded into the background in another election year are going to rise up to the foreground. So I know that people in um, more purple districts, so, you know, with a more of a mix of Democrats and Republicans than say we might have here in Brattleboro, um, you know, really there's an emphasis on not having any gun legislation um, the second half of biennium, that you do that the first half of the biennium, um, which is like a level of legislative scheduling that would never occur to me <laughs> as a person who just like really um, tries to legislate with my values and evidence. And I tend to, um, yeah. Mm -hmm. So um, that's been, that's interesting. It's interesting to watch things get heightened. And one of the things that got really heightened recently was the PAY Act. Right, which is one of the things we're going to talk about yeah. uh, this this morning. Um, so, as you mentioned, and and just before we go into legislation, I'll just note that um, I don't believe there are any contested races in the Brattleboro district, um, but for the the Putney Dummerston, uh, I think that's Wyndham four. Yes. Yeah, so Yep, that that has some contested races. Mm -hmm. The 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 Matt Treber, uh, what we've traditionally thought of as the Matt Treber Carolyn Partridge district, mm -hmm. uh, that has some contested races. And then I think we're going to see some over in the Deerfield Valley as well. Um, oh, really? Yeah, I I okay. think um, I, I'm not sure yet because some of the people in that area uh, tend to file independent. Mm. and they don't have to file yet okay um and so just some i noticed some independents were missing from the secretary of state's list mm -hmm. um of who's who's filed papers to run so that's what i mean i'm not sure but we might have and some. so we might still have independents running in brattleboro too so none of that's true just filed for the primaries. so just democrats republicans and progressives have filed for the primaries and so we might have independents running in you know brattleboro guilford vernon who knows um, but point. yes, the, because Nader um, isn't running again, there's a very wide open race in that district. Um, so Mike, technic Mike Markey technically has a primary. Um, and then in Rockingham, there was an appointment of Kelly Tully um, to replace um, Matt Treber's spot. But um, Leslie Goldman, um, who was actually um, got more votes from the that area Democrats, um, and her name was also sent out as a sent up as a nomination. So I think she's declared to run as well. And so um, that's going to be an interesting race up there. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. What's well, been um, another sort of like election gossip um, piece that's interesting is. This year, for whatever reason, and this is happening throughout the state, a lot of Republicans are running in Democratic primaries. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And, and so there's sort of a longstanding um, 
I'm not gonna call this a tradition, but um, progressives have often run in democratic primaries. And then once they win the democratic primary, they sort of flip to being a progressive for the general. Um, and that's something that happens in Chittenden County a lot. It doesn't really happen down here, um, but it happened recently in Windsor, which is sort of close to here in the last race. Um, and so that same trend for whatever reason seems to be happening this year with Republicans running in the Democratic race. And my understanding is that some of the folks running in that Putney, Dummerston, Westminster district have historically voted Republican. So, okay, uh, curiosity factor here from the journalist. Yeah. If they're um, a Republican running in the, the Democratic primary, will they have an R next to their name or a D next to their name? They would have, you mean after they win the primary? No, it, when oh. people go to check their yeah, name on so the ballot. You don't, um, in Vermont, which is different from a lot of other states, you don't actually have to ever declare a party, mm -hmm. um, like as a voter, you know, like every time you right. go vote, you just get to pick which ballot you want. And I've heard about people sort of like voting, getting a Republican primary ballot because they like want to vote for like the lesser of two evils or the greater of two evils because they think the greater evil will win, well, whatever, I don't know everyone has their own strategy for voting but um so that person then you just get to then they have a d next to their name in the primary on the primary ballot but then hypothetically could um drop that d in for the general so is that fair to the voters i don't think it's fair to anyone but i also don't you know party is a very yeah, they're not as strong in Vermont as they are in other It's not very places. strong in Vermont. And, um, you know, the party platform, which each um, party's sort of town, county, state mechanisms develop, does not bear a very strong resemblance to the legislation that gets pushed in any given year by the members of that party in the legislature. And so there's a disconnect there. Um, you know, in some Republicans' defense, um, I know there's a lot of people who are really sort of unhappy with the direction the Republican Party has gone in Vermont or has gone nationally. And, you know, the Republic, the actual party apparatus in Vermont is very aligned with the National Republican Party, though a lot of members of that party are much more sort of, I don't know, Snelling Republicans or something. I don't, you know. So I, it's complicated. Yeah. There are a lot of people who consider themselves Democrats, you know, even now in the legislature, who I would say are probably more moderate Republicans than Democrats, um, if we look at sort of what the origins and the values and the platform of the party are. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's no um, purity test. This is true. And uh, voters should really be looking closely at what someone's history is, what yeah. someone's values are, and what policies they're really committing to push, as well as what endorsements they're receiving. Mm -hmm. um, because a lot of the groups that do endorsements do some pretty, um, are pretty serious in the questions that they ask and the issues they ask you to grapple with. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it does remind us that we, we need to be informed voters. Yeah, yeah. And, and can't just show up and be like, well, I know them, but I don't know them. <laughs> yeah, totally. And then in my own race, um, 
you know, I filed my paperwork, but I haven't even finished um, sort of an announcement to send to the paper yet or officially started campaigning, partly because there's no knocking on doors um, and partly because I think my time is better spent focusing on my legislating right now because there's a lot of work to do. There's a lot of constituent work to do, supporting people to get unemployment and all of that. But um, it's hard because I think elections are really exciting. Mm -hmm. And it's a really good opportunity to talk to people about what they care about in a way that people aren't always willing to do. So um, I'm hoping to dive into that if, if this recess actually happens. <laughs> well, good luck. Thanks. Um, both getting to the recess and grappling with the rest of the summer. Um, yeah. So let's talk about some of the the recent legislation that has passed as well as what might be wrapped up today. Mm -hmm. You mentioned the Pay Act, which has to mm -hmm. do with legislative pay, but it also involves some other aspects as well. Yeah, the Pay Act has very little to do with legislative pay. So most of what the Pay Act is, is the pay for employees of state government. And so um, it's the legislative mechanism that connects to the budget whatever the collective bargaining agreement is between the administration and the various unions. Um, so, you know, the SEA to state employees, the um, police union, um, et cetera. Um, the judiciary has its own bargaining unit. And so that's what the Pay Act is. And so it pays for the employees of state government to um, get their pay and like puts in some other mechanisms connected to that. And so as part of that, there's also um, mechanisms and organizing around elected official pay. Um, and so historically, legislative pay has been in its own little standalone category. Um, and it's we are moving it into the category with the other elected officials, so which are called constitutional officers. So the treasurer, the auditor, the um, governor, all those sort of lieutenant governor, all those statewide officers, they're considered um, constitutional officers. I'm a little fuzzy today. It's been a very, very long week here in yes, the hypothetical has. Montpelier that lives inside of my computer. Um, and so we're moving our pay in with that. But the bigger issue is um, the conversation around the collective bargaining agreement, because it, it, in sort of an exciting move, for the first time in many years, um, the VSEA and the administration agreed on contracts without going to arbitrators, um, without, sorry, without going to arbitration, without going to the Labor Relations Board, um, really just came to an agreement between the two parties um, without outside forces jumping in. And so, that's a really exciting win for sort of the trust um, within the organization of state government. And what that meant actually, um, part of that bargain is a really interesting piece that usually um, state employees get um, a COLA, a cost of living increase every year, and then step increases. And step increases are, um, sort of you move into a different legislative, a different, sorry, a different pay bucket. Mm -hmm. I, I can like see the step increase chart in my head from when I was a state employee, but it's hard for me to explain it with the words. Um, 
So step increases are when you basically like move slightly from one position to the next, mm -hmm. you get an assigned raise because you're considered in a different category of pay. And some people get them at different times and some people get them at other times. It depends on how long you've been at your position and um, a bunch of other stuff. Um, and then the COLA or the cost of living increase is a percentage of your pay that goes mm -hmm. up every year. And what's interesting about a COLA is that the more money you make, the more your COLA is because it's a percentage. Mm -hmm. Right. Good point. Yeah. And so this year, as part of the collective bargaining agreement and really acknowledging that um, these are complex times for state governments, instead of doing a COLA, there is a flat amount of money that is going to every state employee. Um, and it is as a almost like a bonus. And so for employees that are on sort of the bottom half of the pay scale, it's actually more money than they would get as a COLA. Hmm. And for state employees that are on the upper half, it's actually less money than they would get as a COLA or probably the upper quarter. Um, and so it's a much more um, equitable extra disbursement. However, it does not go into um, ongoing increases. So mm. if there's a COLA next, you know, in two years, it would that it would be on what the base is now. It's not added to their base pay. And so there's a, you know, some interesting pros and cons there. Um, and it helped everyone come into compromise because there's aspects of it that are quite progressive pay wise. And then there are aspects of it that are regressive and that we're not actually increasing the base. Mm -hmm. um, and so that was the grand agreement that was struck. There was a lot of debate in the House about, um, and I believe in the Senate as well, but I was not there for that, um, about whether or not this is the right time um, to fully fund state government um, and to fully fund the employees of state government, given all of the confusion um, around how much money we have and what the economy is doing and COVID and all of that. And a number of legislators wanted to reopen the collective bargaining agreement, wanted to force a renegoti renegotiation of the collective bargaining agreement um, because of this scarcity mentality. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm really, really pleased to say that we did not do that, um, that we you know, voted yes and support of the collective bargaining agreement for the first year. And so that we really, and. I think it's really important to understand that, you know, a lot of people were saying like, well, you know, there are folks in our communities that are suffering and so everyone should suffer, right? Mm -hmm. um, but if everyone suffers, we all just sort of spin our way tumbling down the hill. We, we have some people suffering. that are still have stable incomes while other people are suffering. The people with stable incomes um, can continue to spend in order to create more opportunities for other people within the economy. Um, they can continue to have the extra resources to volunteer. There's just like a lot, you know, you wanna keep as many people stable economically in a community as you possibly can, especially in a recession. And one of the sort of interesting macro pieces of community economic development is the more, um, large stable institutions you have and state government and universities and hospitals are yeah. sort of um, huge part of that. 
Yeah. The more of those you have in an economy, often the more the economy can thrive because that stability really begets prosperity. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think now more than ever, it's important time for us to invest in state employee pay. So I, I know that this session, ha you know, COVID has thrown all sorts of things to the wind this session, but, you know, you and I have talked about wages in Vermont a lot. And we've talked about the data of showing how really not great in general our wages tend to be in this state. Mm -hmm. I think we rank in New England like five out mm -hmm. of six as far as wages go. New Hampshire go. is the only one. Hmm? New Hampshire the only one. Is New Hampshire the only one worse than us? No, I think it's Maine. 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 Yep. So I'm curious, just in general, has the legislature ever acknowledged that our wages statewide just tend to be lower than our neighbors and that that can cause as as many not all but some of our demographic issues that we're we're wrestling with if people can't make it here financially why um, would they stay you know i'm wondering yeah. if that was ever acknowledged so the legislature as a body doesn't really acknowledge much mm -hmm. right um <laughs> um, I'm just gonna let that sit there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, because like it's a lot of people in a room, and so they'd all have to agree to something, agree with something, and understand something to acknowledge it as a body, right? right. Um, so, I mean, I suppose when we pass a resolution, we are technically all acknowledging something as a body. Um, but we just passed a resolution about um, Juneteenth and Black Lives Matter, mm -hmm. and. Um, I wouldn't say that that it meant that we were actually acknowledging it as a body. So um, it's certainly a conversation that mm -hmm. happens um, that I was sort of regular raising in the Commerce Committee. I think it comes up a lot. I think there's, um, you know, the constant battle between the conversation around wages and the conversation around affordability and which one wins. And I think you and I have talked a lot about how you know, it's the wages, not the affordability, because when we just focus on affordability and not wages, then we basically set ourselves up to be a developing nation and not a member of, you know, the U.S., right. um, you know, in line with our neighbors. And I think people really disagree on sort of the theory of change of what it would take to improve wages. Mm -hmm. um, so, and then there's also... Um, the very real situation that we've talked about a lot, um, and my colleague, Lucy Rogers, who's 23, don't want to, I think she's 23, she might be 24. Um, she's, um, she sort of framed very eloquently that she's not sure that our colleagues who tend to be baby boomers um, really can understand the tremendous economic pressure that younger folks are under, that it really is unprecedented. Um, and the wage gap really between, you know, Generation X millennials and boomers is especially, is, remarkable nationwide, but particularly in Vermont. Yeah. Um, and so given the hypothetical citizen legislature, 
and the fact that, um, you know, we make $12,000 a year. And so in order to be able to serve making $12,000 a year, you need to have some other, some other path mm-hmm. towards money. Um, we have a, you know, we have a pretty tippy, um, top heavy group of legislators who really, I don't think do understand what wages look like in Vermont, mm-hmm. um, and how incredibly disconnected they are from the needs that we all have. So no, I don't think the legislature has acknowledged that. The reason I ask is, is, you know, that, that old maxim that where, um, intention goes energy flows and and so sometimes i wonder like i i know that as a legislature the more perspectives you have the better Mm -hmm. and so you want people to to agree or disagree on issues but i i wonder sometimes like do we know what we're actually moving towards Mm -hmm. if we haven't agreed on some basic um values or goals or um things that the state needs yeah so that's kind of why I asked that question no I I mean it's probably the number one conversation I've been trying to push since I got there um as well as really this idea that we need to agree on the problem before we can find the solution um which is something that we often don't do and so some of that is some discipline around how we think about legislation which is I've um is something that's been really important to me as a member of the government accountability committee and then there's sort of this second stage of really reckoning with this issue of wages. And there are a lot of reports that we receive, um, especially the Women Work and Wages report, which was really powerful and we've talked mm-hmm. about before. Um, but people don't necessarily read reports. And you can read reports and not like really integrate them into your experience of the world mm-hmm. um, because it's just something on paper. Um, I don't know, Olga. It's hard. It's really hard to get people to understand something that's so different from their lived experience. It's the same thing that we, you know, see when we talk about structural racism. Mm -hmm. And if you are, you know, a fairly wealthy, comfortable person, or even someone who's not that wealthy, but bought their house in the 60s or 70s in Vermont, and so um, either don't have a mortgage or have a remarkably low mortgage, I don't think you can really you likely have friends in very similar circumstances because mm-hmm. that's how social groups work. And so I really don't think that people, I think it's really hard for people to get their head around. And I think it's really, really important if we're going to build a Vermont where people can live, let alone thrive. Um, and so when we were looking at legislation to sort of stabilize the business environment, um, given the incredible impacts of sort of COVID shutdowns. I put forward a proposal with the Working Vermonters Caucus and the Women's Caucus. It was sort of a partnered proposal that said, we are going to prioritize businesses that, you know, pay a certain wage, have certain benefits, you know, respect workers' rights. um, Because we know that not every business in Vermont is going to survive this. Mm Right. Like that's really hard, really scary. I saying that to the person whose business isn't going to survive is a heartbreaking proposition. But and change happens. Right. And we don't have enough money from the feds to 
make good on every loss. Mm -hmm. There isn't enough money to do that. So if we know we're going to have change and loss and shifts, why not prioritize those places that we know the majority of Vermonters would benefit from? Mm -hmm. um, but that's a really sticky wicket because then you're, you know, picking winners and losers and legislators hate to do that because the loser might be like the person who emails them the most. Um, it becomes very politically complicated, especially in an election year and um, would also sort of slow down the money getting out the door because there would be, you know, a gate to pass through mm -hmm. um, or a filter or screen or something like that. I don't want to call it a gate. Mm -hmm. um, and so that was not included in the final package, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. And so um, the, let's see, we are spending, um, For our radio listeners, Emily's looking at her notes right now. <laughs> oh, look at them and they're color coded even. I know, I'm really, you know, we got a printer, never had a home printer. Oh, I just switched to away from gallery view. How did I do that? I don't know. Gallery view. There we go, okay. Um, we got a color printer right before the COVID hit, which is really great because I think it would be really hard to be at home without a printer and generally, I'd, I've always avoided having a printer at home because they tend to break constantly. I find mm -hmm. them to be sort of like sewing machines. Like they're really awesome for a week and then something gets jammed and you don't know how to fix it and then you give up on it, or <laughs> at least I do. But anyway, so color printer, we are spending um, around $90 million. That's not right, that's reserved for later. We are spending $800 million. Um, $800 million an enormous amount of money and of that money um, the vast majority of it is really going to support businesses some mm -hmm. of those might be healthcare businesses like hospitals but the majority of it is going to support businesses and is going directly to the directors owners of those businesses and that 800 million is from the federal cares Act? that's from the federal okay. yeah it's from the COVID relief funds um, And so given all of that money going out, um, it seems like a really powerful opportunity to leverage some wage, some changes in mm -hmm. how, you know, how Vermont econ Vermont's economy is structured, um, how wages are paid, who wins and who loses, who benefits. Um, and so that's hard. Yeah. That's hard. That's just going out like that. Um, well, and not that I don't think that we want to make sure that we're really, you know, keeping our main streets vibrant um, and knowing, of course, that if a business closes, then all of the people working there lose their jobs. Mm -hmm. um, but I think we could really put our values to this budget in a way that would build a more vibrant Vermont, or at least a Vermont that we um, isn't less vibrant. Um, after January. So um, that's disappointing. And there's other things in here that aren't disappointing that I'm happy to talk about too. Okay, fantastic. We need to go to break to hear from our underwriters. Um, but I also want to acknowledge that finding common values and coming up with a common set of priorities also takes time. And let's face it, that's something that 
especially with COVID, a lot of people have not had. So I want to acknowledge that too. The Montpelier Happy Hour on WVEW 107.7 LP, your community radio station. Here on WBEWLP Brattleboro 107.7 FM, your community radio station. I'm your host, Olga Peters, and I'm talking with regular contributor Emily Kornheiser today. And we should note that the opinions expressed on this show are ours and only ours and not the radio stations. Emily! Olga! <laughs> So before the break, we were talking about um, some of the legislation that uh, has passed in this kind of session that has not ended and is only recessing and going to start again session. Um, And you brought up the 800 million that's coming from the federal COVID relief um, monies Mm -hmm. to Vermont. And can we talk a little bit about where some of that money is going in, in the state? Please. And it's a little, it's around a billion dollars that's um, coming from the feds in total. And a, in total. And a little bit of it um, we're setting aside to make some decisions about in the fall. And a little bit of it um, has, a lot of it actually has been spent already by the governor. Um, so we are, today is hypothetically the last day of this section of the session. Um, and we are trying to, and I think I mentioned this on a previous Montpelier happy hour, but as we've said, time is complicated these days. So um, instead of passing a full year budget before we leave, which is what we would normally do in May um, or even April, we are just passing a first quarter budget. That's right. Um, which I like to think of it as the fifth quarter of FY20 instead of the first quarter of FY21, but whatever people's brains enjoys can work. So, um, and so all of the COVID relief funding is sort of woven into that in a certain way. Um, And a few other bills that are sort of connected to appropriations. And so that conversation, you know, there was a conversation in the Senate. There was a conversation in the House. The House sent over our proposal. The Senate did their tweaking, much tweaking, sent it back. They just sent it back last night, um, voted it out last night. And so today we're going to be doing, and somehow this is what happens every year, like this degree of like last minute down to the wire decision making. So uncomfortable. Like you said, right before the break, not sure the best decisions get made in this environment. This is how government works. Mm-hmm. Um, so today, the House is hypothetically going to negotiate and or concur with what the Senate proposed. So none, nothing that I'm talking about here is definite. It's um, the final squeezing together down to the wire. So yes. I have, yeah. We should just note that we, while this is broadcasting at 2 p.m., Mm-hmm. on WBEW. We're actually recording it at 8 a.m. before you go on the floor. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say even at 2 p.m. when this airs, um, <laughs> none of this will be definite still. I would say like more like 
nine o'clock tonight. Okay, cool. Yeah. And maybe even tomorrow morning, we got threatened with that yesterday. Oh, fun. Yeah. Uh, which I think, just for readers to note, is an interesting phenomenon around the legislature that, um, so we might come back on a Saturday, but I can tell you we've never come back on a Sunday because that is the Sabbath. Well, and, for some people. Um, for some people. In fact, Saturday is the Sabbath for many other people, not just Jewish people, but also Muslims, yep. maybe even some other people that I don't know about. And so it's just like one of the many ways that, you know, cultural hegemony gets the better of us. So mm -hmm. onwards to where all this money is going. Um, and apologies to any listeners. I've, it's been a long week and a long month and a long collection of months. So I'm a little, a little wired this morning. So um, financial assistance to businesses. There's like a whole category there um, that totals around $200 million. Um, and it's a combination of stuff that's been um, that's going back and forth sort of which buckets things go into, but I'll talk about um, that micro that um, those sort of buckets because I think they're interesting. So there's one section um, that's a little more than a million dollars that is support to micro businesses. Um, and that would be through the community action agencies. Uh, just for folks context so in here, this... that would be Sevka. Thank you. Um, and every county has an agency like Sevka called their community action agency. And those were um, a really an essential part of the war on poverty um, mm -hmm. in the 60s and 70s. Those were established throughout the country. Um, and so that is funding going to support to, you know, sole proprietor businesses um, with an emphasis on women and minority owned businesses. Um, the language in the legislation says minority owned, but it's not the language I would use if I had drafted the legislation. Um, because in most areas of the country, white people are actually in the minority. So we should stop using that language. Um, there is a combination of around $40 million that is going to the agricultural sector. Maybe even more than that. Um, and so that's divided up in different ways if you look at the Senate and the House versions. But some of that is grants directly to milk producers and processors. That's around $25 million. Um, and there's been a lot of conversations about how that is not going to, um, that's probably going to go directly to vendors um, to pay back bills. And so um, that has sort of interesting implications. Um, $5 million to ag producers and processors. That would include um, cheese, maple syrup, apparently a shrimp farm. Who knew there was a Vermont shrimp farm? I found out on the House floor. I'm kind of excited about it. Um, Forest economy stabilization grants, um, that's wood processors who um, are, from everything we've heard, are sort of going to feel the pinch of this a little bit further down the line. Um, the Senate wants to give some money to agricultural affairs. The House didn't. And then a million dollars to um, ooh, somewhere, 
somewhere more than $5 million, but less than $10 million is likely gonna go to the Working Lands Fund, um, which is a really interesting program that provides grants to anyone who does anything related to working lands. And so that can be farmers, it can be foresters, it can be, it's a pretty broad swath. It can include agritourism, um, but it's, and they provide tremendous amount of technical assistance along with their grants to really help folks who are working the land in some way really get their head around the business proposition of how to do this well. And we can see spots throughout Wyndham County where that money has made a really big difference for businesses to turn the curve around having a more stable business model for themselves. Um, so that's, it's one of those places of um, successful strategy that Vermont is sort of continuing to invest in um, because it, we see that those grants really pay off the way, because of the way they're executed. Um, there is $70 million that's going out through the tax department and the Agency of Commerce and Community Development to businesses who have suffered losses that they can show from their tax receipts. Um, and so there's the first tranche of money that's going to businesses who have suffered more than a 75% loss. And then another tranche of money going out for folks who have suffered more than a 50% loss in business, um, in income. And so that's the money that I was talking about in terms of how is that going to impact wages um, and folks who are working? Where will that, when it, that money hits a business, where will it go? Is it going straight to profits? Is it going to vendors? Is it going to the folks working there to rehire them? Um, and the one piece of equity that's built into that legislation right now is that people need to um, certify compliance with labor laws. Seems like a nice bare minimum. And then the other piece um, is that there's has to be an equity in um, geographic distribution of that, which is great. Mm -hmm. um, because we want to make sure that it's not just the folks who are sort of first in the gate who get the money, because that was a big problem with some of the federal funding, like the PPP grants. Yeah, yeah. Um, there is onwards. Um, so if we put all that money together, um, that's like between ACCD and tax, we're getting somewhere in like the 140 million mark, 150 million mark. Um, the, there was some funding in there for partners of the Agency of Transportation. Um, so like the folks who work on our roads, et cetera, who are contracted to work on our roads who were paused for a few months. Mm -hmm. um, but it's not clear if that money is gonna stay in there. And that's just a few corporations, so it's really, Mm -hmm. Not clear on if that's the best use of funding. Um, but if you work in that industry, I'm sure it, it feels like it is. Yeah. Um, onwards. Um, grants to the Arts Council for $5 million for them to redistribute to arts and cultural organizations. We know um, experience a huge hit from this because folks could not gather. And right. most art, art is related to people gathering to experience said art. Mm -hmm. um, more than a million dollars going to outdoor recreation work and businesses um, who might need to put in place some adaptations um, in order to meet health needs. Five million dollars to the Vermont Community Loan Fund um, to support nonprofits. 
somewhere between 10 and $15 million to reimburse local government for COVID costs. Mm -hmm. um, and there's likely gonna be another piece of federal legislation that's also connected to that. And then there was a million dollars in the House version for a program called the Better Places Program. Right. Um, which I was pretty excited about because it's really, it's the only place in this where we're really focused on what comes next, mm -hmm. not what's happening. Mm -hmm. um, but that seems to have been removed in the Senate version. I'm not sure what's going to happen. Huh. And those were sort of micro grants for communities who wanted to um, revitalize main streets, bring people together, like sort of placemaking activities. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's all the um, business support stuff basically is in that big category. And the total grants um, in that category that are going to businesses are around $93 million. Okay. And all the things I just said. Um, and then to agricultural producers, we sort of come up with a total of around 200, a little more than $200 million. Onwards. <laughs> Next bucket. Next bucket. Um, technical and marketing assistance is somewhere between nine and $10 million. Um, that is likely a lot of that would go out through the regional development corporations to provide um, assistance to businesses to do various ways, they various ways they need to adapt to this new environment, um, whether it's the new economy or health or whatever, um, as well as support to businesses in marketing. Um, and then um, also a $2 million that's been sort of a longstanding project around the Secretary of State's business portal, which really um, desperately needs some updating in order to collect um, both excitingly demographic information about business owners, which we don't have, mm -hmm. as well as really um, streamlining all of the various registrations um, and right. regulations that a person needs to be in compliance, putting this all in one place so you don't have to sort of bop around. I don't mm -hmm. know if, um, when I opened a cafe on Elliott Street, I was really shocked at how, you know, every, um, every license is dependent on the last license, but they all come from different offices. And that was just a small cafe. I can't imagine what it's like for a much larger um, organization that might have also environmental concerns. So that's somewhere between nine and $10 million. The next chunk of money I'm very excited about because it's something that we have talked about before on here, um, mm -hmm. which is somewhere between 80 and 90, 85 and 95 million dollars going for housing assistance. Hey, nice. And so that is yes. And so that is 23 million dollars for the Vermont Housing Conservation Board to put out housing grants. And I should have reminded our listeners at the beginning of this that all of this money has to be spent by December 30th. Uh huh. I don't know why it's not December 31st, because there are 31 days in December, but it is December 30th that all this money needs to be spent by, which is a, not very much money, not very much time to spend an enormous amount of money that has a lot of restrictions connected to it. So. The $23 million for VHCB housing grants is for doing exactly that project that we talked about um, where someone in our community or a coalition in our community would buy a motel to sort of stabilize 
um, transitional housing opportunities for our community. So that's one example of a project that that money might go towards. Mm -hmm. And so that's really exciting because we had managed to house all Vermonters for a short period of time and really don't want to give up on that promise. Yeah. And so this is an opportunity to really take that next step. Um, knowing that we need to build more housing stock, like mm -hmm. permanent housing stock, but one cannot do that before December 30th. No. No. Um, or, or you could, but probably no one would want to live there because it would fall down around their ears within a couple years. Indeed. <laughs> Indeed. Um, and then, so there's $550 million to Vermont Legal Aid um, to support folks who are experiencing legal housing challenges. Um, around evictions and foreclosures and such. Um, another $250 million um, around landlord counseling and assistance. And a lot of that money goes to um, housing rehab. And if folks get um, rehab funds, they are required to keep that property affordable um, for five years or in the last version that I read. Um, and so that goes on um, foreclosure protection, eviction protection, um, rehousing recovery. So that's more of sort of our standard housing model mm -hmm. um, with support to our housing agencies for that. Um, and then further money for the Department of Children and Families housing incentives. And so that all adds up to between 85 and $95 million and has sort of some immediate opportunities for folks who are struggling with housing as well as some midterm opportunities for rehabbing um, housing stock that's offline, as well as purchasing um, motels and such for longer term housing. So that is, um, I don't, I'm not sure enough money is going into this to fully meet the need, but mm. it's really hitting each of the necessary buckets in a meaningful way. And so that's really exciting. Nice, that's good to hear. Yeah. It is really good to hear. Um, next bucket somewhere between 25 and $45 million for technology connectivity assistance. So is that um, internet? Is that? That is a combination of um, broadband, um, last mile grants, um, especially going to folks who need it for school or telehealth. Um, some of that is going to the public service department for ratepayer arrearages, hard word to say. Mm -hmm. So we know that there was a moratorium, which is an easier word to say, essentially a pause on being able to shut off things. Um, you know, we weren't allowed to, corporations weren't allowed to shut off electricity, telephones, internet um, for a short period of time during the emergency order mm -hmm. or evictions, right? Um, but it's not as if those bills didn't go away. And so we're seeing a lot of people who might have accumulated six months worth of bills and then all of a sudden have to pay it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so this is funding to support people to pay off those arrearages. Mm -hmm. um, it's great. And then um, there's also some money there going towards um, cybersecurity for the Agency of Digital Services. Um, I think specifically to support state employees to work from home if we have a second surge, mm -hmm. when we have a second surge. Um, and so that piece of the bill seems to have had um, 
a lot more fluctuation in what the strategies are. Um, and I haven't had a chance to read the side-by-sides on the language about what's happening there yet. So I can't tell you um, more about the specific connectivity strategies that are contained there. Because I get the feeling from looking by the side-by-side -side budget that um, the Senate had a very different idea about how to do this well than the House did. So I just want to let you know, Emily, um, yes. so you can prioritize. We have about five minutes left. What? I know this. We went a little too long on the first half, so now the second yeah. half is just like. It's always too much fun. Maybe we should have a three-hour show. <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> we would have fun. I don't know if listeners. I know would, the but listeners we certainly would. Like, whoa, these people—they really like talking to each other. Okay, we need to get out so, more often. We um, can't. It's COVID. Going faster here. The next tranche of money is healthcare money. That is somewhere around $370 million at the wow. max. Um, some of that is going to address health disparities. Some of that's going, might be going to suicide prevention. Some of that's going to stabilize adult day programs and EMS programs um, who really experienced a lot of challenges around their Medicaid billing model mm -hmm. during shutdown because they were fee for service, a lot of fee for service agencies were really struggling and this is sort of to make them whole so they don't shut down and then a bunch of money to really um, support hospitals who also um, suffered significant losses because they stopped doing elective procedures uh, food hmm. 23 million dollars and we talked about that last week so if listeners want to know what the legislature is doing around food security we did a great interview with Margaret Atkinson about that last week. Yep. So listen to it. Um, and then $14 million for child care and family supports for vulnerable populations. Um, and so that is increases in reach up, um, children's integrated services, parent child centers, child care, summer camps, et cetera. Mm -hmm. A lot more to say about that that I'm not going to say right now. Um, some work on public health. Um, the Attorney General has a racial disparity project. Um, the Director of Racial Equity in the legislature, I mean, in the um, administration. Um, that's just somewhere between thirty and $50,000. So I don't really even know why I'm putting it in here, but it's listed as its own light item. So I guess I can tell constituents about it. Mm -hmm. um, and then some stuff around state lands and public health. That's somewhere around $3 million total. Um, and that's it. Oh, did I talk about reimbursements to local government? I did. Yes, that's you everything. did. Okay. Those are all the dollars that are hypothetically going to be spent to keep Vermont um, as whole as it can be, given the tremendous challenges that we have experienced and that I think we're going to experience into the future. And so I'm really happy about the buckets and the way some of those buckets were thought about. And I think um, we are still going to have a lot more to do on the other side of this. Definitely. So yeah. um, before we sign off, today, what bills are being considered? Um, so there's or, all of that budget bills and there's sort of all those pieces are um, in a few different bills that have numbers and then things keep on being pulled out of one bill and into another bill. 
um, because of different mechanisms of moving things forward that are confusing and not interesting to anyone. Um, and then we're also looking at an act relating to addressing racial bias and excessive use of force by law enforcement. Mm -hmm. um, that's called S219. It is still quite um, in flux. Yeah. There's a big tension between moving fast and moving well, mm -hmm. always in the legislature, particularly in this instance. And we're going to spend all of next week's Montpelier Happy Hour talking about racial justice and criminal justice. Um, so I'm going to not get too far into the weeds on that. Yeah. Um, and then there's an interesting bill on workers' compensation um, and how workers' comp insurance um, might be able to provide a presumption of eligibility um, for folks who get COVID on the job. Hmm. Um, and then there's a maternal mortality review panel and um, a second bit of legislation around Abenaki, um, call it restitution, but Abenaki, um, it's maybe a path to restitution mm. or restoration. And so this is a, we passed a bill around Abenaki hunting and fishing licenses yep. um, at some point recently couple weeks ago, I think. Yeah. And then yesterday we passed second reading um, and third reading on an Abenaki place names bill. And so whenever a place names plaque is replaced um, at some state owned facility, um, the Abenaki place name for that location will be added as well. And so that's a nice way of sort of bringing our history into the present mm -hmm. that we should have done long ago yeah so, yeah well thank you emily you're welcome that was a real race to the finish but Woo! but you did it i did it um and good luck the rest of the day at the legislature so this is all the time we have for today's montpelier happy hour oh we have to do a toast i have a toast oh please do okay to rest and the color red including roses, strawberries, tomatoes, and all that is available to us in the height of summer. May it translate into our budgets. Here, here. <laughs> <laughs> Abundance for all. Mm -hmm. Thank you for joining us here on the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW LP Brattleboro 107.7 FM, your community radio station. Emily, where can folks find you if they have questions? Oh, they can find me at emilykornheiser.org, ekornheiser at gmail.com, ekornheiser at ledge.state.vt.us, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. And every Saturday morning, do a legislative roundtable on Zoom, 9 a.m. You can find that on Front Porch Forum or Facebook. And as always, you can find the Montpelier Happy Hour on the Vermontitude SoundCloud page or the Vermontitude Facebook page. Have a great weekend, everyone. <laughs>